Welcome to Amici, news and insights from the New York courts. I'm John Carr. We're honored to start the new year with a diversity dialogue segment featuring the co-chairs of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. Appellate Division Justice Troy Weber and Acting Supreme Court Justice and Albany County Family Court Judge Richard Rivera. The Williams Commission, the first court-based entity in the nation committed to racial and ethnic fairness in the courts, has led this effort for over 30 years. I think it is fair to say that the Williams Commission has never been more active, more proactive, more innovative, and more robust than it is right now. And I'm eager to explore the present and the future of this historic commission. But first, I'd like to get to know our guests. Judge Rivera, Judge Weber, thank you for coming on the program. Your biographies are a matter of public record, but I'd like to dig a little deeper and get a sense of what makes each of you who you are and the judge that you are. So I'm going to ask you each to tell me, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? What were your most informative experiences in life? So I think everybody knows, well, anybody who knows me knows that I grew up in the Bronx, because <laughs> I'm always talking about how I'm from the Bronx. Very proud of that. Uh, I grew up in the Bronx, uh, at, the South Bronx, actually, is where I grew up. I attended uh, Catholic school, grammar, as well as high school, so I'm a product of the Catholic schools. I'm an only child, um, and uh, my childhood was, you know, basically, as I said, as an only child uh, with my parents. Unfortunately, both my parents died um, when I was a teenager, um, and before they actually, neither one of them actually saw me uh, go to uh, law school, become a lawyer, or anything of that nature, mm. and um the reason I wanted to become a lawyer uh, was because my father had died and um, uh, my mother, uh, a couple of years after he died, I came home from school and there was a summons and complaint on the door. And I didn't really know what it was, right? Because I was maybe oh, 13, 14 years of age and there's this thing taped to the door. And I'm wondering what it is, so I take it off and uh, my mother comes home and I give it to, she came home from work and I give it to my mother. And apparently, my father had owned a, uh, a, a, um, uh, a an apartment building way back when, and apparently he had not paid uh, the uh, the monies for the oil for the for the building, and so they were suing him. He was deceased, so I guess they're suing now the estate, which I did not know at the time that they should have been suing the estate and not my mother because she had nothing to do with the building. Uh, but uh, so they're suing her now. And so she had to take off time from work. And at that time, if she didn't work, you know, she had to use sick leave or vacation or whatever. And I saw the stress that it placed on her because she had to go to lawyers. She had to try to find legal services to represent her. It was a civil case. They didn't want to represent her, et cetera. And so I was totally taken by this. And I was like, I, you know, I have to do something to help my mother and to help others in this situation. So that's what made me... Um, decided I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to help individuals. I wanted to help individuals such as her, individuals who, you know, really um, you didn't have the, not, not the wherewithal, but the financial wherewithal, I guess, to try to deal with these issues. And so that was why I ultimately became a lawyer. So you, you made that career decision pretty young. Yeah, as I said, I must have been like 12 or 13 years of age. Plus, mm. growing up in the South Bronx, although we lived uh, in the South Bronx, we kind of lived on the edge of the South Bronx. And so it was also interesting because that was the time when the Bronx was burning. 
And literally on my way to school, you know, there would be these burnt out areas on Charlotte Street and um, Barreto Street, you know, all these different places in the uh, South Bronx. And I kept thinking, this is crazy. You know, again, I wanted to help people. I wanted to build the Bronx back up. I wanted to try to figure out a way to get low-income uh, housing uh, for individuals. So that was another reason uh, why I wanted to become a, uh, a lawyer. Tedrick, aren't you also from the Bronx? That's correct. Born and raised in the Bronx, in the South Bronx as well, which is kind of interesting. So I, my, my, I'm a, my family is larger. There are five of us in our family. Um, and uh, I'm the middle child, so I grew up right smack dab in the middle. Growing up, we were pretty much a bilingual family, although I always say that Spanish was really my initial language. My parents wanted us to speak Spanish, so they spoke Spanish to us in the home, and they figured that we could help each other out with the English, and we would learn our English at school. They spoke English, you know, what, what back then we called broken English, but they were not um, as proficient as we became from going to school. But I remember that I was often asked to interpret whenever someone needed help with Con Edison, you know, the electric company or the telephone company, they would always ask me, not just for my family, but also for the friends of the family. I used to think it was annoying back then because I always had to take the phone. But I realized in a way it, it sort of shaped, you know, me for who I am today. But I remember back in those days, um, I, it was really my brother's godmother that planted the seed for me to become a lawyer because she told me, you know, when you grow up, she told me in her Spanish, when you grow up, you're going to become a lawyer. And I remember thinking in my head, you know, she's crazy. I wouldn't have said that to her because we were taught, you know, you respect your elders. And I would have been, you know, punished if I had said it to her. But I thought to myself, she's crazy because my idea of a lawyer was somebody dressed in a suit, sitting behind a desk all day. And I thought that was a boring job. You know, I... I didn't want and to for the record, you're sitting behind a desk right now wearing a suit. Exactly. <laughs> so the last laugh was on her. But, but by the same token, I remember feeling like um, we in our community in the Bronx were not really seen fairly by law enforcement and by the court system. And so I thought I wanted to be a judge. Um, I didn't know, right, the connection between becoming a lawyer and becoming a judge. To me, those were two separate things. But I felt that my way of being able to help um, bring about some fairness and justice was to become a judge. There was one incident I remember in our neighborhood, and I lived in a block where all of the homes to the left and all the homes to the right had been burnt down and knocked down, and so there were these empty lots on either side of our four buildings and across the street. In fact, at a certain point in time, instead of going around the block to my junior high school, we just cut across the lot because they had, <laughs> they had cleared it all the way through to the next block. And that's how bad it was back then. But um, one of the lots started being used by the police officers who were in the precinct one block over, the 42nd precinct in the Bronx. They would park their cars in the empty lot next to our building. So one of, one of, the, one of our neighbors, she was watching her younger sibling, and the little girl fell on her glass bottle. She, was, she used to drink milk from a bottle, and it was glass back then. She fell on it and it fell on her chest and cut her open. The, the young woman that was watching her ran outside, ran toward the police officer that was guarding the cars in the lot, asking for help, and he did absolutely nothing. He wouldn't even call the ambulance. And I remember thinking how unfair. These cars were more important to him 
than this young girl and this little girl who was dying, who actually came within an inch of piercing her heart when she fell on the bottle. And I remember thinking, that's the unfairness, that's the injustice that I see from law enforcement, and that sort of spurred me to become a judge. I actually, when I got to college, wanted to go to med school. So even, you know, the time frame that happened between then and, and college, I had sort of vacillated between medical school and law school because I wanted to be a doctor, and I figured that was another way that I could help. Um, and I wound up choosing law school. But it was that idea that, like Justice Weber said, wanting to help people, especially in our communities, because I felt that we were not being helped at all, and we were painted by this brush that was negative all the time. That's a great story, two great stories. Let's uh, transition to the uh, uh, Franken-Williams Commission. Um, Justice Weber, why did you get involved in that in the first place? Uh, well, I worked, after I became a lawyer, I went to the DA's office in Manhattan for five years, and then while I was there, I had uh, numerous cases in front of a, uh, an African-American male judge, uh, William Davis, and he saw me, you know, I had a case in front of him, and he asked if I would be his court attorney, so he offered me the job, and, and I became his court attorney. He was the one who encouraged me to be a judge because prior to that, I never even thought of, you know, becoming a judge. Uh, he encouraged me to do so. He helped me in terms, he mentored me in terms of the electoral process. Uh, he also, after I became a judge, and he actually swore me in when I became, when I was elected to the civil court, he uh, had me get involved in the uh, Williams Commission. Um, I don't recall whether he was on the commission or not. I think he was, but I'm not really. Yeah, he was on the commission at some point in time in the early days. And so he encouraged me to uh, to join the commission. And so I joined the commission. So I've been on the commission for over 20 years, I think. Oh, wow. Desiree, you, you joined it much later, right? Yes, I did. When I, um, when I was, before I got elected, I was a child support magistrate here in Albany County Family Court. When I decided to run, I had thought about how I could, as a judge, um, make a difference. And I started, I didn't know anything about the Franklin Williams Commission. I did a search on OCA uh, for judicial commissions, and that's how I came across this one. And when I read what, what the commission stood for on the uh, website, I decided I would, once I got elected, apply. And so when I got elected in 2014 and took the bench, I reached out to Joyce Hartfield and started the process. And that's how I became a member. So since 2015, I've been a member. One of the first acts of what became the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission was a report on the racial and ethnic bias in the courts. And, and it was rather damning. And as you well know, uh, well, not quite three years ago, uh, that same issue was revisited by the special advisor on the courts, Jay Johnson, with similar results. Were either of you surprised? No. And see, John, that's my point. Everyone, you know, we talk about what's going on in the court system. Everyone points to the to the Jay Johnson report, the Johnson report. And it's stated in the Johnson report this, and the Johnson report found that. And I'm kind of torn because this these are things that the commission had recognized and focused on for years. You know, we just celebrated our 30th uh, anniversary, you know, last year. We knew this, you know, and we were trying to do things to, uh, to fight these things. And here, you know, Jay Johnson, who I absolutely love, 
you know, we 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 came to be considered friends during his, uh, you know, d during his compilation of the report. We spoke about various things, and I love him, and he did a great job. He only had six months to put this report together, but I do have, you know, some issues with the fact that everyone talks about the Johnson report, and again, as you just mentioned, Franklin Williams rendered the same report. Uh, unfortunately, in 1991, and I used to say when the Johnson report came out, I used to say if you just tear that page off of the of Franklin Williams' report, you could just slap on Jay Johnson, and it would be the same report. But I will say that what happened with the with the that report by Secretary Johnson is that it helped us. It, it gave us greater visibility, right? And as a result of it, as the initiatives were able to hire staff and were able to do more things. And so it did help to focus on the issue. And I'll give you an example. Months before um, uh, the chief judge uh, asked uh, Secretary Johnson to render the report, we at the Williams Commission, we wrote a letter to the chief judge stating that there should be mandatory implicit bias training for all court personnel, including judges, right? Nothing happened. No response to our letter. We followed up. No response to our letter. Secretary Johnson uh, takes over. I think that was in June, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. He takes over. We speak to him. You know, we have conversations with him. I say to him, one of the things I think we need, and you should state in your report, mandatory implicit bias training. He states in the report there should be mandatory implicit bias training. What do you know? There's mandatory implicit bias training. So, you know, he, he helped us in that, and the report helped us in that. So, you know, I'm thankful for that. But I just wish folks would stop, you know, just putting, giving him all the credit. And it's not an issue of, you know, we, you know, we want the credit as well. It's just the issue is these are things that we've been doing, and this has existed, unfortunately, for all these years. Would you agree, Judge Rivera, that the Johnson report was not a, a revelation? I agree wholeheartedly. I, I wasn't surprised at all. You know, as you heard, I was a member of the commission since 2015, and Justice Weber had already been even prior to that. So it was work that we were already doing based on the Williams Commission report. And and so it wasn't shocking to me that nothing had changed. Besides, we live it. You know, we're judges in the court system, so we live it. As you know, I sit up here in Albany County, which is in the third judicial district, and when I got elected in 2014, there had been no other judges of color at the county level. I was the first. And up until January 1st of this year, I remained the only Hispanic judge in the entire judicial district and in the third. And so we were living it. And that's just at the judges level. The staff, the staff situation was the same. You know, when I, when I was a child support magistrate and I got appointed in 2010, I again was the first to that position. And when I left, I wasn't replaced by a person of color. Now we do have one more, uh, but that's been what we have been living. So it was not new to us. We were not shocked at all. I wasn't shocked. To take it further, I mean, the third, I, I believe in the last 200 years in the third, third department, a 28-county region, there's been a grand total of one judge of color ever elected to the Supreme Court? Uh, yes, and that was uh, Justice Reba. Well, now that number has gone up. We, we now have a second African-American judge from our district, um, and but they did appoint two judges of color to the third department finally with Justice Ahrens and Justice McShann, but they were both from New York City. In fact, I think both are from the Bronx. So yeah. 
because there were no attorneys here and no judges here at the Supreme Court level that were elected, they brought people from the Bronx. And so you're correct, but it took that many years for that to happen. Now, there certainly seems to be a correlation between the, the issuance of the Jay Johnson report and what I would see is a greatly enhanced Franklin Williams Commission. You know, it, you're, it seems to me you're much better staffed, much better funded than you've ever been before, and you're taking on all kinds of activities. Uh, it seems like you are always coming out with a report, doing an event, having a conference. Is that fair to say? Definitely. And that's why Absolutely. I said I, I can't, you know, really criticize Secretary Johnson in the report because he, you know, gave greater visibility to the issues and therefore OCA, um, you know, re realized that they had to dedicate more resources to the Williams Commission. And, and not only the Williams Commission, remember, they also gave greater resources to uh, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and also... Uh, the uh, the Inspector General's office as well, uh, greater visibility in terms of uh, individuals who had issues, complaints, et cetera. So yes, the, the, the Johnson report certainly did that. They certainly helped us in terms of uh, staff. So we used to just have just, we had two staff members, uh, Joyce and, and Carlene. And so now, you know, we have seven, uh, which is, you know, very helpful. And we have one individual who is in Albany. Uh, we have fellows, you know, uh, upstate as well. So, yes, it, it, the Johnson Report certainly helped us in terms of uh, uh, obtaining additional resources uh, from OCA. Jennifer. I do echo that. I was going to say I echo that as well, that it did. It's bringing more visibility to the commission. It did allow for us to, to have more staff, and that was you know, part of what was recommended that we be given more credibility. We're already here. This is the work we're doing. We're, we're tasked with with continued work, right? And so we needed the support, and they have given that to us. What is that continued work? What's what's next on the agenda? What What's the plan, say, for, for 2023 and beyond? I don't think we have enough time, John. Um, we have so many things that we, uh, you know, have planned. I, you may know that we rendered the family court report, and so we're working hard in terms of increasing the number of family court judges, especially upstate, uh, which is, you know, an interesting issue. And I don't know how we, we tackle that issue, but, um, you know, family court, increasing the judges in family court, increasing the resources to family court. Uh, we're also, we're basically looking at those courts that are predominantly, used predominantly by individuals of color. So we started off with family. We're, uh, we're also looking at criminal court, and we will be looking at housing court as well in, in terms of, um, again, just increased resources uh, to those courts. We're also going to continue a lot of what we have been doing, like our fellowship program. We were granted an additional fellow. We started out with three. We now have four. You know, our hope is to increase that number again, continuing our mentorship program with attorneys of color who want to become judges, pairing them up with existing sitting judges throughout the state to assist with that. You know, we continue to meet with our AJs. Once we have another chief judge, we plan to meet with the chief judge and, and have a conversation on with that person. Um, so a lot of what we're doing now, we're, we're going to continue and expand. As you know, we're working with the video, the Franklin Williams video, and, and um, doing programs with, with the young people 
so that we can try to reach them at a younger age. We have the court, um, we've been working with the uh, Careers in the Courts program so that um, high schoolers and middle schoolers can find out about a career in the court system because our, our effort obviously is not just to increase the number of judges of color, but also attorneys of color and non-judicial personnel. Right, and we also have the professional development program, which I think you know about. That one, I think, is that one has been very, very helpful. Um, and, and in that program, we have spoken to individuals, you know, who wish to be promoted, and we've assisted them in terms of the application process, the resume uh, process as well, and the interview process. And we've gotten tremendous feedback, and we've gotten a number of individuals who were promoted and who had not been promoted in the past and now we're promoted after they took part in the program, and they attribute the, pro the promotion in part to their participation in the program. We also have a pipeline program that we've been um, very um, interested in continuing. I just came back from a conference in San Diego uh, with the Association of American Law Schools, uh, wherein we talk about how to increase the number of individuals uh, uh, of color to go to law school, attend law school, but also stay, you know, stay in law school because once you get there, that's all well and good, uh, but you have to remain there uh, and also pass the bar and, and become lawyers. So those are other programs that we are you know, in the process of um, um, continuing and, and also trying to beef up as much as possible. It's a very, John, very... I, also want to, I also want to point out, John, briefly, the, the town hall meetings. As you know, we've been having town hall meetings. We've had five so far. We plan to continue those because it gives the employees of the court system an opportunity to voice their concerns for us to address them throughout the court system. And so we've gotten a lot of feedback on those as well, and we plan to continue doing that. Yeah, and that's an excellent point, um, Judge Rivera, because that's where the professional development idea came from. It was because exactly. during the town hall, remember, during the town hall, one of the uh, participants, one of the, the, the questioners, I don't remember whether he was a clerk or a court officer, he stated, well, you know what, I've, I've applied for all these positions, but they've never told me, like, why I didn't receive the position, right? But I've applied, like, 25 times or something of that nature. And, you know, there's never been any feedback. So we were thinking, well, you know, that's interesting. How do you, you know, you apply for these positions, you don't get any feedback. So that's where the, the, the idea came up. Oh, you know what, maybe we should do some kind of professional development, help these individuals in terms of, as I said, application, resume, et cetera, and interview, and, and maybe that way give them feedback as to perhaps, you know, why they're not getting the positions that they're applying for. What an exciting time for the commission. I, I, I know Frank and Williams would be proud of you. And I think all of us in the court system are, are, are very grateful for what you're doing. So th thank you for your work and thank you for coming on the program. Thank you, John. Thank you, John.